Welcome to Beyond the Map, a podcast that looks beyond the obvious to understand the hidden geographies that make our world. I'm Joe Sharp, Professor of Geography and Scotland's Geographer Royal. On Wednesday the 20th of September 2023, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak made a statement about the UK's progress to net zero. He said the following. The UK has set the most ambitious target to reduce carbon emissions by 68% by 2030 compared to 1990 levels, and is the only major economy to have set a target of 77% for 2035. Thanks to this progress already made, reaching the UK's 2030 and 2035 targets do not have to come at the expense of British citizens who are continuing to face higher costs of living particularly as the UK's share of global emissions is less than 1%. This means, he continued, some measures that were planned are no longer needed to fulfil them. In the first part of this quote, Sunak was building on a figure that Boris Johnson used to celebrate, that the UK had already achieved 44% of reductions in emissions since 1990. So here in the West, we are slowly moving towards a cleaner environment more solar and wind power, electric vehicles we all dutifully recycle and look for sustainable products. The soot and dark satanic mills of the Industrial Revolution are long behind us. This would seem to be a hopeful story. Yes, there are countries around the world still dependent on coal, where workers still struggle in dirty, polluted environments, but in time, surely their economies will decarbonise like ours and we will reach a sustainable, greener future. The second part of Sunak's statement, that these cuts do not have to come at the cost of cuts to British citizens' standard of living, is the dream of green consumerism. We can have sustainable development, a form of growth in standards of living, alongside a commitment to the planet and to the lives of future generations. But is this dream of green growth really achievable? The term greenwashing was coined by environmentalist Jay Westervelt in 1986 in an essay criticising the irony of the Save the Towel movement in hotels at the time. He noticed the vast amount of waste he had come across throughout the rest of the hotel, where there was no visible signs of efforts being made to become more sustainable. He said that instead, the hotel was simply trying to reduce costs by not having to wash towels as much, but while trying to market it to consumers as eco-friendly. As consumers, we have perhaps become a bit wiser to easy claims of green consumption, and we expect more from companies. And they've responded. More than 90% of Fortune 250 companies have signed up to corporate social responsibility standards. We now expect, or perhaps are willing to pay a premium for, goods and services with green credentials. Recycled paper and plastics, no single-use plastics, less packaging, carbon-neutral delivery, and so on. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel like we're doing our bit. And yet, global emissions are growing. Levels of carbon released into the atmosphere are increasing. What's going on? Today I'm joined by Dr Laurie Parsons, a geographer at University College London, who has sought to disentangle the complex global supply chains and trade links that will let us understand the impacts of green consumerism. Laurie's recent book is Carbon Colonialism, How Rich Countries Export Climate Breakdown. I'm really glad the way that you framed that question um, around the the arrow of time, because that's something that we really have an issue with, I think, in the way in which we conceptualise um, the idea of the climate and our actions to, to resolve the issues that we're facing. 
central to the narrative that the book is trying to challenge is this idea that Western countries, that the rich world has essentially passed through this phase of dirty industry. And it now finds itself in a in a cleaner and decarbonizing phase. And the other countries are essentially just behind us on the kind of conveyor belt of economic development, and they will reach our stage in the future. And uh, there's a kind of scientific basis for this, or scientific, slightly in inverted commas, the Kuznets environmental curve. So this essentially says um, that all economies pass through a phase whereby they initially have a low environmental impact. Then when they begin to get richer and to industrialize, their environmental impact goes up. And that reaches a peak around the area of heavy industry where we in kind of Europe were around like the early 20th century to the mid 20th century. And then subsequently that declines as we reach like the era of mass consumption that we're now in today. And this data that you mentioned, that 44% that we see in the UK, the fact that countries like the UK are massively reducing their carbon emissions if you measure it domestically, that's just fodder to that idea that we just need to keep progressing, keep everything on the same track, move forward economically, and ultimately the environment will take care of itself. But the problem is this whole narrative only works if you take a domestic lens on this issue, if you just look within the borders themselves. So what I try to do is to essentially show that actually, no, our economy doesn't stop at our borders. So the way that we measure our environmental impact shouldn't stop there either. We need to take account of our huge international economy, which is like this complex spider web that extends all around the world, and to recognise that the environmental impacts that happen as a result of production processes that ultimately create goods we're using and eating and, you know, and purchasing and driving. And all of those things are our environmental impacts too. And if you bring all of that into the story, then it's a completely different picture. Actually, that 44% mostly disappears. It goes down to even the government admits that it goes down to 15%. But, you know, even that 15% is dubious if you actually begin to look at things in a kind of, uh, in an actual physical way and actually begin to look, look over those factory walls and through the kind of, cracks in the fences of production. So it's not a rosy picture, but I think it's important to challenge it. Yeah, and the reason that that uh, 44% is so misleading is because of the nature of supply chains that, that characterise the, the global economy just now. When I was doing my undergraduate geography degree many, many moons ago, I remember being asked to think about where my breakfast had come from, to think about the way that the global supply chains of orange juice and uh, cereals, sugar and coffee and these sorts of things were integral to the very most everyday acts. And that was quite crucial to the way that we began to think about globalisation. But your book shows that that kind of a geographical awareness is now impossible because supply chains have become so complex. Is that is that is that what's key to this um I suppose this mismatch between these two different accounts of what the world is is looking like. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So in one sense, it's a good question, because, you know, if you start to break down these kind of everyday commodities that we encounter in our everyday lives, even the very food that nourishes us, and you realise just the sheer number of miles that have gone into putting that on your plate in front of you, it's a good question in terms of actually just bringing that home to you. But you're absolutely right that what has happened in the last 50 years is not that we've become for the first time international, because actually, as I tried to show in the book, we have a long history of international trade and international integration and no country is an island. But that the last 50 years has seen these huge technological innovations 
uh, in particular changes to logistics and the fact we've now got this uh, shipping container which can go all around the world and be very efficiently moved through the global factory, as I call it. Um, and then also telecommunications that mean we can manage and control essentially factory processes on the literally the opposite side of the planet in real time. These have essentially facilitated an intensification of production that is now so complex that we've lost genuine oversight over it. And this is a massive problem. I mean, I use the, um, the example of the garment industry all the time because this is a, it's just a great example of, A, it's a very old industry that goes back hundreds of years and you can trace a kind of unbroken thread back to, uh, to, <laughs> to use a metaphor there, all the way back to the 18th century. But it's also one of the most kind of complex and, and messy industries like because it's so broken up around the world. So, I mean, you know, I talk about Cambodia a lot in the book. In Cambodia, its economy is incredibly dependent on the garment industry, but it doesn't make any materials. It doesn't make any cotton, doesn't make any synthetic fabrics. All of that gets imported from other countries. So recognizing how all of this is tangled up is really, really important because in theory, you know, you can have this global factory that runs through all these different countries like a like a kind of conveyor belt, an international conveyor belt. But in reality, each of those different countries has a different system of jurisdiction and regulation. And it doesn't add up to the sum of its parts, essentially. Things get lost in this in this hugely complex uh, array of different production processes. And yeah, I mean, just like food, this web of connections essentially leaves us with a lot of kind of black holes in our understanding of the environmental impacts of that production. Reading about the, uh, the garment industry and bricks in, in your book was absolutely fascinating. And it, it reminded me of my, my first kind of realisation of the increasing complexity of these uh, supply chains in, in 2013 when um, there was the horse meat scandal. Remember, there was horse meat in, in <laughs> ready meals. And uh, the, the Guardian sought to map out how this had happened. And I think most of us assumed, you know, the, uh, meat would have been sourced from somewhere. It would come to the, I don't know, Findus Lasagna processing plant, wherever that was. And that would that would be the end of the process. But I remember it was um, the, the supply chain. And I guess sometimes this was uh, just information or value being uh, exchanged, but sometimes the meat itself moved back and forth over European borders, starting with the HQ in France, then it went to Luxembourg, then Spain, then Cyprus, then the Netherlands, then Romania, then back to Luxembourg, and then on to the UK. I mean, just for that one product, it was just impossible to to trace the product, but also, and I think this is key in your book, tracing responsibility for different decisions, for uh, different emissions, for different uh, labour issues, how on earth you start to trace out uh, responsibility? And I guess the other question, which I suspect is related to this, is, is this complexity intentional? Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm glad you raised that. Um, <laughs> the Tesco lasagna thing, I think it was Tesco. <laughs> Apologies if I'm doing anything libelous there. But I do remember the headlines at the time. It was, uh, you know, it did say 80% horse. Um kind of splashed all over the headlines. And at the time I was a PhD student, I was actually probably eating quite a lot of these lasagnas. So I was like, <laughs> how many, how many GGs have I consumed? <laughs> but um, but um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly um, the, the crux of the issue, not just about the, the logistical difference of, of the difficulty of tracking all of this, but actually the key thing that this does is it makes it incredibly difficult to pin responsibility. Because I mean, you've mentioned six or seven countries there 
in the production of that horse meat. Who ultimately is responsible? I mean, you'd think the buck stops with the lead company, but that's almost never the case because the lead company doesn't have, it doesn't own the production processes that happen along that supply chain. It partners with different suppliers along that supply chain who all do one little bit of the process. Each of them will blame the people before them in that kind of process. And ultimately, responsibility gets passed up and down that supply chain to the extent that it never actually lands anywhere. It's really, really difficult to place responsibility on a lead firm. I mean, I say difficult, it's been almost impossible. And actually, that's been one of the key incentives for the kind of increasing complexity of this uh, of this global factory that ultimately makes a lot more sense for lead firms to conduct their production processes overseas, not only where it's cheaper, but also where regulation is looser and ultimately where they don't have to take responsibility for anything that does happen in that production process along the way. And that, of course, has incredible knock-on effects. And the uh, you know, this is this is really what your book explores so so brilliantly and so chillingly. That the kind of processes of of countries and economies becoming more tied up with the global. What you know, it, it, in terms of the more conventional narratives of development is is what development is all about. You become more modern. You become more integrated into the uh, the global economy. So that conventional narrative is international development is a way of helping to alleviate the impacts of climate change around the world, providing drought-resistant seeds, irrigation, mechanization, particular forms of education and so forth. But what you're showing in your book is that this process instead is, uh, you call it a systematic outsourcing of climate breakdown. Can you explain how that happens? Because in terms of that kind of conventional narrative, it seems slightly counterintuitive. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned development because that is, um, well, it's the reason that I've spent so long in Cambodia going all the way back to when I was 22, 23. I mean, the reason I was interested in international development as a as an area to become involved in, um, really cared about that. And Cambodia at the time was really the poster child of global development. Uh, for the first decade of the 21st century, it was uh, the sixth fastest growing economy in the world. And this is coming from an incredibly low base, but that made it all the more extraordinary. I mean, the tragic history of Cambodia is, uh, I mean, uh, I think it was King Chanuk put it, like his people have known suffering like no others in the world. It was just, you know, several decades of just appalling tragedy. And then for that to be turned around in the late 90s to the early noughties, you know, to really have this incredible double-digit growth year after year, it was seen as miraculous. It was called the Cambodian miracle. So having kind of witnessed that and been present for a lot of it, but at the same time to kind of witness the environmental degradation which has gone alongside it. I suppose living through that, a part of what this book tries to do is to make to reconcile these two things. And I've come to the conclusion essentially that these are not separate, discrete processes. Actually, this is very much part of a, an interconnected story. And that integration into this global factory, integration into this global system of production very often does mean significant environmental degradation. It's marketizing the environment in a way that frequently means that um, the environment will ultimately become degraded. And that's what we've seen in Cambodia, is lost, uh, which has lost you know, huge proportions of its primary forest, um, which has seen a huge amount of damage to, um, to, uh, to waterways in particular. I mean, the Tonle Sap Lake is something that I talk about quite a lot. And there are many people who are more expert than me in the Tonle Sap, but it's a real tragedy to see 
what goes on there. I mean, you know, everyone who, who lives on it says, you know, there's 10% of the fish that there used to be. And this is just such an important waterway for everybody there. I mean, uh, it provides 70% of the protein for all Cambodians. So, so yes, it is a challenge to the conventional na- narrative that development means progress and environmental improvement in the long term. And actually shows that, yeah, a lot of the environmental impact associated with production that we used to experience within our borders has ultimately just gone elsewhere. It's gone to places like Cambodia, who kind of suffer the impacts of those industrial effluvia uh, in their own soil. The fact that these two narratives are so entangled comes through so powerfully in um, in various parts of the book, but particularly your a couple of quotes from the World Bank uh, around how we value the environment. And, and it's it's quite astonishing to read these in the context of the book. And yet, you know, this wasn't some kind of uh, outlier. This was from the heart of the Washington consensus, from the heart of those organizations that ultimately shaped this narrative of development, the, the direction of development. And I'm just going to quote it. It's from the, uh, the uh, Lawrence Summers, the World Bank chief economist from 1991. And you quote it in the, in the book. And he says, I think the economic logic behind dumping a load of toxic waste in the lowest wage country is impeccable, and we should face up to that. I've always thought that countries in Africa are vastly underpolluted. Their air quality is probably vastly inefficiently low compared to Los Angeles. Just between you and me, I'm not quite sure who the you and me are in that particular context, but he says, just between you and me, shouldn't the World Bank be encouraging more migration of the dirty industries? to the least developed countries. I mean, that's just astonishing that they could say that. And yet, you know, elsewhere you talk about uh, the critique of Bhutan, which is the one country that you highlight that is not just carbon neutral, but carbon negative, that its forests are, are contributing much more decarbonization than they're uh, consuming in terms of carbon. And yet the World Bank is concerned that uh, the forest sector remains underutilized yes (laughs) how can the country sustainably invest in its forests and it's it's such a mind-blowing way of thinking about the world and yet it's become so dominant yeah i mean it's become so dominant i mean the great thing about this level of dominance is you lose the sight of the forest for the trees it's so dominant you can't see anything else (laughs) um apart from very few examples like bhutan for example um but yeah no i mean that quote is just um that particular, I mean, it was an internal memo that leaked. <laughs> I, think right. actually that probably, <laughs> I think it probably is reflective of a way of thinking which is more widespread than just that one single, uh, that one single quote. And especially because we've seen that actually that was written in, I think it was 1994. Uh, yeah. And in the last 29 years, exactly that has come to pass and on an absolutely massive scale. The dirty industries, as uh, Lawrence Summers specifically calls them, have indeed migrated en masse. To the global south and that's what we've seen and you know the dirt has gone with them and of course then we've ultimately enacted a system of measuring environmental progress which benefits the people who are doing that and says look how much of these dirty industries we've got rid of like look and watch our progress and be impressed but ultimately you have to take a global view and i mean that's that's one of the key messages if you take a global view things look very very different and it makes for very uncomfortable reading for um, someone like myself who considers themselves progressive, who tries to do some of the right things in terms of uh, living sustainably, who um, celebrates some of 
the small winds around around me. And yet, as you point out at various points in the book, the cleaner, safer, nicer environment that I'm beginning to enjoy is predicated on that risk, that dirt, that pollution, that danger effectively being exported elsewhere. No, yeah, exactly. And, and that's, one, that's one of the reasons that it is uncomfortable, um, unfortunately. And I guess that's, you know, kind of bringing you face to face with the people who are in those endangered environments is one of the key goals to try and actually make, give, them, give them flesh and personalities and faces and allow you to kind of see what things are really like. Um, it's one of the things that I guess I was most kind of conflicted with in writing the book uh, around this kind of destabilizing, this unsettling of people's kind of sustainability comforts. But I think it is really important um, because we're not at the stage of, of kind of tackling climate breakdown we used to be at where it's a case of, you know, you either care or you don't. You're either an outright denialist or you're someone who does stuff about it. A huge amount of the battleground at the moment is dedicated to creating and kind of servicing these red herring corridors, which direct people's very, uh, you know, well-meaning intentions down essentially blind alleys or things that will not produce an outcome which is sufficiently strong or sufficiently fast to make a real difference. So troubling those narratives around that is one of the key things that I do. And I try to do it sensitively uh, as much as possible because like, we all make these things. Like, I avoid flying whenever I can. I predominantly buy secondhand clothes. I try to eat little meat, you know, planetary health diet as much as possible. But these things make me feel better, but I try not to take that too seriously because <laughs> the ultimate impact is not sufficient to make the impact that I want to see. It's not the correct scale. So what I've, consistently advocated is recognizing the power that we hold as privileged citizens of western democracies which gives us the power to involve ourselves in local politics and to involve ourselves ultimately as a group in national politics and to reshape how we manage our global economy around the world yes and i'd like to come back to to that in just a, a minute but just before that i think the other one of the other ways of thinking about the world or imagining the connections between different parts of the world that, that you challenge is how climate change and the impacts of climate breakdown are being uh, experienced by folks in the in the global south that I think we tend again because of the way that the, the west dominates the narrative and, and and media western media dominates the way we imagine the world that it's the big catastrophic events that we see on television the big the, you know the the, the floods the, the the hurricanes and and so forth but what you explain in the book is that for for most climate instability is is experienced as a ratcheting up of pressure just making everything a bit more precarious and vulnerable eventually leading to dislocation from traditional forms of production and resilience ultimately leading to the dis displacement of people from the land to the cities feeding into those the, these kind of dirty polluted industries that we're talking about so it's not just that we're exporting carbon but we're also exporting terrible labor conditions and increasing vulnerability and precarity to the populations in the south so it's not about you know we we, we might kid ourselves that okay there's carbon issues with consumption but at least we're providing good jobs and security for folks in the factories in the south and yet it's all of this again is tied up to produce greater precarity 
Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things, I mean, I guess one of the messages, especially of that second part of the book, is that how difficult it is, how impossible and perhaps unnecessary it is to try and separate the environmental and the economic side of this climate precarity. And I think that's one of the, there's several things that I've sort of been in writing this because it goes back a number of years that I've tried to kind of tie together after years of attempting to get my head around these things. And one of the things that, so a lot of my work prior to this has been around climate migration and environment linked migration. And Cambodia, as obviously it comes across in the book, is a very climate vulnerable country. It's often cited in the top 10 most climate vulnerable countries in the world. And it has a lot of migrants. But I mean, having worked with migrants and in a in kind of environmental sphere since I was in my early 20s, I'm not sure I've ever met a climate migrant, <laughs> which is what this kind of book is trying to show. It's almost, it's very, very rare for someone to say it was only the environment or only the climate that caused me to move. There's, there's always other factors involved. There's an economic structure, a kind of an economic set of circumstances that people live in, which is often clearer to them than the, the, the climatic and the environmental aspects themselves. I think it's important to recognise that because it's both a responsibility and an opportunity. We create the circumstances that the environment meets, that these kind of risks meet. And so if people find themselves being pushed by a particular, you know, a very heavy drought, for example, or a flood. That's not just the weather doing that. It's the it's the circumstances, it's the economics of the situation that people find themselves. It's the fact they couldn't cope because of um, the economic risk that they face, which created that vulnerability and ultimately saw them having to leave. And we have control over that. We've unleashed something that we don't have direct control of anymore at the moment um, in the increasingly risky climate. We do have direct control over the situations that people find themselves in and we can help people to better weather and be more resilient to these issues in a positive way i think that's well to me i find that heartening because we can do something about that uh, in a more direct way that we can yes and you say that when it comes to adapting to the impacts of climate change there's no solution that even comes close to the effectiveness of making poor people less poor is there not a danger that you make poor people less poor and they increase consumption you, I mean, you you talk about two people could be in the same place but not in the same environment you're devastating uh heat waves if you've got money for a fan you can pay for the electricity you are literally not in the same environment as the person who lives next door who doesn't but of course that has consequences and is that is that where that relationship breaks down between poverty and environment or is that where we need to start looking to other traditions and other cultures that have different relationships to nature in terms of the economic value that we place on nature? Well, Sorry, that was two um, questions. Yeah, uh, you know, um, just to unpack that, I think, yeah, there's, um, there's a lot there that I completely agree with, but I don't think it's inevitable that we have to say that we have to necessarily lead on from making people less poor, making them less vulnerable, and then necessarily moving down this path of increasing consumption. One of the key things that I do talk about, and I think it's actually interestingly, one of the key divides in the realm of sustainability is this question of whether it's people or it's capital, it's money, which creates environmental breakdown. And I mean, the evidence to me kind of really points to the idea that it's, that it's money. I mean, you know, as I've said, the carbon footprint of an average 
Ethiopian person is around 100 kilograms per year, and the carbon footprint of an average person from the United States is 16 tons. So it's 160 times more. Now you can't really say it's just one and one in those situations. Clearly, there's something very different between those two people. But that kind of environmental impact associated with mass consumption is not inevitable. Most people don't around the world don't necessarily live in that way. I think it's possible to have wealth, but in a different sense, wealth in terms of security, wealth in terms of well-being, in terms of having confidence in the future. And that's something that we can invest in and work towards in a different way. It's difficult because, again, it's that, it comes back to that same thing of like we're so deep in this forest, we can't see the trees. But I tried to point out some ways in which we can see different alternatives. Bhutan is one, but uh, Latin America also has a number of different alternatives. And there's different ways in which this can happen, like the idea of giving a personhood to nature. Pachamama is what it's called in, in Ecuador, I think, uh, the idea of, uh, of nature having a personhood that you have to protect like they are a legal entity. And that means giving nature you know, the capacity to self-reproduce. Just paying attention to that kind of preservative and more kind of holistic way of looking at the environment, I think potentially can help to square this circle. It doesn't just have to be you know, pumping kind of raw wealth in the sense that we know it today into, into these environments. In fact, I think there's a, there's a much more progressive way to tackle it. Yeah, I was I was uh, fortunate enough to be in Otorua, um New Zealand last year, and got to to visit Fanganui, where the river has had legal personhood status, and so it's not about that kind of paternalistic protection of nature, but you can be sued uh, in the same way as if you'd if you'd um, damaged a person, and uh, I, don't, I you know I don't know long term exactly what the impacts of that is, but it it changes the narrative, it 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 stops people in their tracks, and they have to think differently about what they're assuming is valued and not so no, exactly sorry no i was just going to say i'm really glad you bring it. i mean the law is the law is quite unfashionable people always you know it's all it's got, everything's got to be an economic solution we've got to grow our, our way out of everything the law is it is hugely powerful in giving people ordinary people the capacity to push back against the impacts of economic actors or people who you know, cause damage to their community. It's something that is we've moved away from a lot in our thinking. You know, we have to just kind of achieve sustainability with money and pricing in the market. But the law is a very effective tool. Yes, and <laughs> and that that takes us on to sort of the the final part of the book. That and and I think in many ways what some people will find the most challenging part of the book perhaps that uh you know as 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 we started off saying that you know many of us now consciously try to make better choices looking out for different badges of sustainability on the products that we buy or carbon neutrality and or, and so forth but another bold and quite controversial claim of your book is that you i mean you state quite clearly you do not believe that consumer power can lead to a more ethical or sustainable global economy. Now, this is often what people fall back on when they you know, recognize, for example, the limitations of international development, the limitations of these kind of big institutions like the World Bank and, and so forth, or the burgeoning uh, array of development actors that now are part of what some would call the development industry. So we move away towards, okay, consumer power, we can all do something. This is not something we should be expecting others to do or, or, or someone else to solve. We can all make a difference. 
probably because we're the, the Band-Aid generation and we've heard Bob Geldof hammering <laughs> on the table saying we've all got to do something. But you you go further and you say we need to wean people off the opium of sustainable consumption. <laughs> that's quite that's quite a bold statement. <laughs> Yeah, and intentionally so. Um, and again, it's something I am quite torn about in the sense that, you know, it comes down to this question and people often say to me, like, surely it's better than not having sustainable consumption. It's just like, well, yes, uh, in one sense. But the problem is, if people's efforts are being directed only towards sustainable consumption, we're not going to achieve anything like the change that we want. So there is a level of change and a level of kind of sustainability that people want to achieve. And then there's a level that can be achieved with sustainable consumption under the current system. And those things don't match. And the key problem is that we've lost as people the capacity to actually have a meaningful oversight over those production processes. We talked all over about this, about this huge web of international production. Now, I've seen firsthand all of the contradictions between what's on a label and what actually happens in a factory. It makes you very cynical about production, to be honest, which is one of the reasons I've taken such a hard line on it. But more than that, the problem is, it's just too difficult for an ordinary person today to be able to tell the difference between something that is genuinely green and something that has just been made to appear green. There just isn't the legal oversight. There's not the regulatory framework to actually you know, make companies stick to what they are saying. And that's a massive problem. I mean, just on a basic level, you know, like every clothing company says zero deforestation. Every clothing company says zero waste of landfill. And I can name, you know, a dozen produced in Cambodia and they're all doing both of those things. And we've pointed this out. It's been in the media. It's been, you know, released. It's in the public domain. Have they ceased these claims? Absolutely not. We just said we've cut ties with that producer and then the roundabout continues. It's another producer doing exactly the same thing. This is the situation we're in. It's rather depressing, but this is why you need to push. Well, we need to push for the laws uh, rather than the sustainable consumption at present. In future, those same sustainable consumption processes will be effective because we'll have the laws to back them up. But right now we need the laws first, then the consumption can come later. And, and the reason that these uh, <laughs> these companies can get around that 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 process at the moment without the laws is that i mean first of all it's their voluntary sign up badges so they're they're it's, it doesn't have the kind of teeth that a law would have but also and what you you explain brilliantly in the book is how there's a subcontracting of, mm. of parts of the of the supply chain so that it's it's not marks and spencers or primark or whoever who has the factory in cambodia but there's so many levels of people sub subtracting different parts of orders out to other producers. And that we come back to that question of responsibility again. The, you know, your um, high street stores can say, you know, we asked for reassurances for X, Y and Z. We got them from the supplier. But of course, they're not taking responsibility for a, a supplier, two or three connections further down the chain, let alone seven or eight different connections down the down the chain. And in a part, in, in part, it is still consumer demand that's that's driving that. The kind of just in time production that's required for, I mean, you point out even some of the more ethical types of consumption, like veganism, a sudden uptick 
in the number of people wanting vegan products means suddenly the supply chains have to respond in the way that we've come to expect to produce things quickly. And so it has to have those kind of flexible, sort of somewhat contingent and temporary links to be able to quickly get the products that are needed to market. Yeah, uh, I mean, the have to is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Now. <laughs> That's the thing we, we have to because we've got used to it. But actually, I think uh, I think people would quite like to uh, to have a different way of producing if they could have genuine, uncynical confidence in the fact that actually this is a really sustainable way of producing goods. I think people would be happy to maybe wait a little bit longer for those goods. And yeah, the the rise of big vegan, as you allude to, that is. Yeah, slightly depressing co-optation of what is uh, overall quite a laudable transition in people's lives and is driven by very good intentions. And then subsequently you end up with something that isn't doing all the good that you would hope. Um, so, yeah, this co-optation is a problem. And I think that's why, yeah, we need to be, I don't know, <laughs> to have a, an activist cynicism about these kind of things. An activist cynicism, I like that. So, so you, you you say we need laws, and absolutely, I can see the value of that. So, it's not a voluntary code that can be can, you get your gold star for uh, for for signing up to, but an actual legal requirement. But given the complexity and multinational nature of these supply chains, how on earth can these be enacted? Well, that's um, one of the things that I. Hope I brought across as one of the more positive things in the books. There's a lot of negativity, of course. It's not all sunshine and roses, uh, as you will know, having read it. But actually, the capacity of us to put in place some sort of regulation, meaningful regulation, that's something that I feel like is a good news story of the very recent past, really starting in about 2017. Um, we haven't come very far, but we've kind of moved away from what was previously the dominant idea that. You cannot regulate the international economy because it's outside of our borders, it's outside of our jurisdiction. And when I've talked to government actors in the past, they've literally just said, you know, straight up, this is not our responsibility. We can't tackle that. Now, that has begun to change in a way that I think is hugely important and meaningful because it's a paradigm shift in the way that we think about our international economy. We've never had that mindset before. And I kind of spend time in the book, tracing this idea of the terra nullius, the idea of, you know, a kind of empty territory into which any economic process is almost an improvement by default. And I think that's a logic which has continued for centuries. But this idea that you can actually have responsibility for what happens in those international supply chains is hugely powerful and absolutely vital in combating these issues that I raise. And there have been a succession of laws in recent years, starting with uh, the France supply chain law in 2017, then you get the like the UK has a very weak law also in 2021. It's in, introducing some kind of plastic provisions this year. And the German supply chain law, which I'm more positive about happening this year, and then the whole EU block is voting on it. I've actually been taken to task for being too positive about this <laughs> because it's, of course, been very watered down. It's been very kind of, it's been robbed of a lot of the power that it would have had if it had gone through in its initial form. But I believe this is the beginning of a shift in the way that we think about our international economy and the way we think about it. I mean, on a basic level, it just means that we apply laws to goods we import as if they were being produced within our borders. And then companies have to take responsibility for how that's produced. If they're found to contravene that, uh, what they've said, then they're breaking their own, they're breaking their environmental laws. So, I mean, that 
is a simple but very, very important shift. And we're just starting to move towards that, I hope, with some kind of acceleration in the next few years. So that would mean that the much lauded 44% that Boris Johnson and others like to to wave about in terms of uh, UK decarbonisation would be replaced. So, so that that figure, just I'm just making sure that I've I've got this clear, was essentially what was produced within the national economy, which of course is a bit of a joke because I, I can't remember the statistic you gave, but the amount of uh, imported emissions, as you as you call it, the outsourced emissions, has gone up remarkably during that period. So overall, in terms of what we consume in this country, carbon has increased, not decreased. And so that the the new way of accounting that is coming into play slowly would be much more about the carbon impact of national consumption rather than national production, because that's a more accurate accounting of what, in this case, British people are contributing to world carbon production. No, exactly. I mean, it makes no sense to calculate it any other way. I mean, if we as a society are using all of this stuff and our, our lives depend on a certain amount of emissions being produced, it makes no sense to kind of just, we're only counting the bits on the island. I mean, we're still using it. We're still it's responsible for those emissions. And the thing is, we already collect these data, but it's a question of just presentation and focus and kind of priorities. But the government DEFRA has these data, and yet the headline figure is always the domestic emissions. That's what benefits countries like the UK, who can then say we're the world's leading decarbonizer. We're at the forefront of this great green transition. And of course, it's not really true at all. But I wonder if it's, it's it, of course, and, and I wonder if it's also because of what you alluded to earlier, the kind of domination of an, an economic way of thinking, because that's the kind of units that we've always been used to thinking about GDP or GNP. Of course, we're going to we're going to talk about production. But as you say, it's very conveniently also skating over what's actually happening. And I think it's that change in mindset that you know, as soon as I read it in the book, it, it was kind of like one of those duh, that's obvious, but, you know, just hadn't hadn't thought about it until that point. And it really does change the way that we should be having these debates. So I think you're right that that you end up much more positively. What, as individuals, should we be doing? Because I think part of the reason that green consumerism caught on, as well as making us feel good about ourselves, I think if we're, if we're a little bit more optimistic, it was about people wanting a sense of agency, of wanting to be part of the change, of wanting to do something. And this appeared to be a way that, that we could genuinely do something. You're suggesting that ultimately we as individual consumers, as individual citizens can do very little through consumption. So what is your your message to us all in terms of of, uh, of how we how we how we can be good citizens in this in this particular uh, new vision of understanding carbon? So, yeah, that, we, I mean, so that we can de- we can decolonize uh, carbon or we can <laughs> certainly not not perpetuate a kind of form of colonialism. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good and inevitable question. And as you say, the book is actually spent with quite a lot of, a lot of it is there's uh, kind of uh, reflecting on my, my agonies over this question. It is genuinely, genuinely difficult. But what I advocate essentially is to move away from the idea of sustainable consumption as being the primary uh, lever that we as people have in order to, uh, to, to, to achieve sustainability goals and rather to move towards the idea of sustainable citizenship. 
And that means being actively involved in the political structures that we have. It means becoming involved in your local council, for example. And, you know, we have genuine power as citizens. As consumers, our power is stimmied by the fact that we have so little visibility of what happens in the international supply chain. We need to give ourselves back that power before we can use consumption as a lever. So sustainable citizenship, bringing the politics back into the way that we tackle environmental problems, that's key to me. And recognising that we have a lot more power than we are told, that we don't only have the power that we can enact at the supermarket, we have the power of citizens in order to vote and participate and become involved in the, you know, the huge political change that needs to happen. We need to give ourselves the tools uh, in order to, to work our way out of this situation. And so in practical terms, the advice that you give in the book is don't go off shopping for green products. Instead, pick up your, pick up your phone, pick up your pen and write to your, all your different political representatives to urge them to sign up to the, this new way of accounting, this, this new accountability. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is possible. I mean, this, I mean, we, you know, we've already done it um, in, in, in relation to some of the, the projects I've worked on. So, for example, something like, I don't know, imported bricks. That's something I talk about in the, in the book quite a lot. It's something that not many people know about. And when they do know about it, they're like, well, this is terrible. Why are we importing 400 million bricks? Why are we importing 40 million from South Asia when every single container of these weighs uh, emits something like 600 tonnes of carbon on its 17,000 kilometre journey. This is absurd. So you can go and become involved in your local council and say, look, let's just not use those bricks. We want actual accountability on the bricks that we're using in this council. And because so many of the things we do in our global economy and the kind of unregulated you know, production and use of these goods is so absurd that almost everyone will get behind it regardless of party. And that's a, that's a power that we have. To be informed and just say, okay, in this, in this jurisdiction, which I have influence in as a normal citizen, we're not doing this anymore. That is something that I believe has a genuine effectiveness, far more so than uh, the simply buying a supposedly more sustainable product. So this is what I mean by sustainable citizenship, to become active, become activists and become radical cynics in the pursuit of a genuinely green future. <laughs> Well, I think that's a brilliant place to stop. Thank you very much.